Grab a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and come chill out with the four sisters. There's Sue, not the oldest, but the others think she kind of acts like she is. She's a critical care doctor who ran a hospital ICU, so maybe it's okay she's a little bossy. Amy's also a doctor who specializes in the lungs. Then there's Lisa, a former fashion photographer. Then there's Lori, the baby of the family, born more than a decade after the others. Their dad used to say she wasn't an accident, but the first three were. Lori's a six-time Emmy Award-winning TV reporter and your host. Take it away, Lori, before your sisters take over. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Four Sisters podcast. Uh, We're on iTunes now, so I hope you will subscribe and write a review if you feel like it. Also, check out our website, foursisterspodcast.com. All right, for this episode, Amy and Sue happen to be at the hospital. Lisa's probably out checking out deer or something. So I thought it would be a great time to have what we're going to call a Four Sisters podcast extra. 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 It's time for a Four Sisters podcast extra. A special report to educate, enlighten, uh, or maybe just entertain you a little bit. This episode is actually going to do all three of those things because our special guest is not only a super smart doctor who works in a trauma emergency room as a neurologist, He's also someone that you might actually know. His name is Dr. Sean Kniff. He was in the first season of Survivor, and he actually worked with me at CBS 4 News in Miami. He's going to tell us some new ways to keep ourselves safe. There are things I haven't even heard of, like jumping in the pool to wash off the virus and disinfecting our shoes, how he goes to the supermarket, just some really cool tips. And he's also going to talk about possible COVID effects on the brain and we got to ask him about being on Survivor. All right. Hi, Dr. Sean. Hi, Lori. Long time no talk. It's so good to hear your voice again. Tell everyone what we used to do together. Yeah, well, I worked with you at CBS News, specifically the Miami division down there. You were our chief investigative journalist or one of them, and I was our medical reporter. And we had a lot of fun. It's very much like a family real nice place to work with some highly skilled and intelligent people. I'm still friends with with a lot of them. With everybody. We're all friends. Do you remember when we met and you told me you had just been on Survivor and then you got bitten by the TV bug? And then yeah. I, I looked you up and I discovered you had a nipple ring and I can't, I yeah, can't get that I out of my head. That. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, I don't have it anymore, thank God. Oh, okay, because yeah. now you know, you're I a have... husband and a dad and, yeah. and a doctor. I'm I don't a think you need that. citizen. When I left my first job as a neurologist, I gave two and a half months notice. I was going to do Doctors Without Borders or I was going to do something other fun, something fun and kooky. And uh, I saw an article in Time Magazine that they were looking for, you know, 16 ordinary Americans to try out for this show called Survivor. And I was like, well, we're going to have a job in two and a half months. I might as well try out for it. And I got on the damn show. So, that was the you know, very first season. The very first season. And, you know, I come back from Borneo and I'm on the cover of the New York Times, cover of Time Magazine, cover of TV Guide. Uh, I didn't know you were you were on the cover of all those things. Yeah, wow. all those things. Walk the red carpet. I've been to World Series parties. I got invited to these absurd, crazy A-list parties as a D-lister. It was uh, quite an eye-opening experience. And a lot of fun. So what are you doing now? You're you're back at work in the hospital, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a neurologist. and what we call a neuro-hospitalist. I'm a neurologist who basically just does hospital work. I don't do any office. I'm at two very busy hospitals in the South Florida area. They're comprehensive stroke centers, which is the highest level, and level one trauma center. One of my hospitals is a level one trauma center. So I take care of brain trauma, strokes, aneurysms, uh, you know, brain hemorrhages, anything that comes in through the ER that's brain related or spinal cord related, I take care of. I work pretty much 
24 seven, uh, for a week. The good news about that is I'm off for a week after that. And as you know, I got three young kids. I got married late in life. And so I get to play dad with them, which is really critical. So you have coronavirus patients, I imagine. There's a front line and then there's sort of the trench behind the front line. And I'm sort of in the trench. But yeah, I've seen quite a few uh, patients with coronavirus. Sometimes they surprise you. I had a patient this past week on our floor with a neurological issue. She kept getting worse and worse from a pulmonary point of view, negative on the first test, negative on the second test. And by the third test, she was positive. So, Oh, she, she had coronavirus and was getting false negatives? Fa- either false negatives or maybe she contracted it later, but negative, negative, negative. I'm presuming she didn't contract it in the hospital. Let's hope not. That would be scary. Listen, in Italy um, and Spain, the hospitals have become the epicenter of community spread. And, you know, it's on the floors. It's on the surfaces. Are the hospitals doing anything or or enough to prevent that? I don't know if they're doing enough. I mean, I would assume that they're doing what they can. But that seems to be the rule of the day, that there's a difference between what would be enough and what hospitals physically can do. I I Um, learned a good rule in life when uh, actually my mom had a glioblastoma. You'll you'll appreciate that medical reference, Um, a brain tumor. But I remember I was chewing a stick of gum and the wrapper dropped on the floor and I didn't want to litter. And as soon as I reached down, everyone in my family yelled, never touch a hospital floor. Yeah. And they're just real. There was a study on coronavirus and I forget where it was, but that it was just reported that it can be on the soles of shoes, which everyone that I know, all my colleagues, we've been leaving our shoes outside. I lice all my, get undressed in my garage. Wait, 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 yeah. time out. I did not know about this thing to worry about. What? Yeah. The shoes? It could be on the soles of your shoes. They had a laboratory in a hospital where only doctors went. So there was no nurses, no anything. And they found coronavirus on the floor there, presumably from their shoes. So we know that it survives in the air a lot longer than uh, previously reported. We know that it's not only six feet, it's about 13 feet. Um, I really don't think there's any way that most hospital personnel are going to be able to avoid infection. It doesn't seem to make any rational sense that you'd be able to avoid contact with this type of microbe. It's just not, I don't see it's possible. It's like trying to avoid the air. You know, it's in the elevators, it's on the floors, it's on the surfaces, and you're using your PPE, but at the same time, PPE is not perfect protection, and, you know, getting in and out of the rooms a lot, you know, there's a point every time you're in a room with somebody, you have your PPE on, when you're coming out of the room, you're actually exposed a little bit, so even though you're in there, as you're um, taking off your gown and your gloves and stuff, as you're... um, uh, doffing your your uh, PPE, you're actually exposing yourself. Um, you know, I usually use the back my turn my back to the patient as I'm taking everything off. But the, are you uh, still patient. in the room with with the patient? Yeah. Why yeah. are you taking yeah. the? You don't have a special decontamination way station. No, I mean all this kind of came out of nowhere. So aye, no, aye, it, aye. no one does. You're in the room and then you're decontaminating. You're you know you're taking de- off. You're all decontaminating materials. in a contaminated room. In a contaminated room and oh. getting out of there. Are, That's are, how are you worried about catching coronavirus? Of course, yeah. Yeah, I am. I mean, for instance, two days ago, I, I had five COVID positive exams. Now, we could avoid going in the rooms. You can actually call them if they're awake and talk to them through the window and talk to them on the phone. And that's sort of a stopgap measure, have 
not a lot of healthcare providers going in the room, but I actually had, was in the room with five positive patients, two of which were surprises to me, which were, were previously negative and then came back positive. But I had to do a spinal tap in a room. Um, it, he turned out to be negative, but it was still in a COVID room where we uh, keep people. And then I had, uh, you know, two people who are COVID positive. There are some neurological manifestations of COVID, and we'll get into that in just a minute. But, um, but you know, I see them for those neurological manifestations. But it's a very tense and very frightening time. Have there been any moments where you thought, oh, shit. I just did something wrong. I put the PPE on backwards or, you know, that's what would happen to me. Every minute of every day. Yeah. Every minute that goes in there. I was, like I said, I did a spinal tap on a patient who had delirium and seizures, which could be some of the manifestations of COVID with a pneumonia. Thank God it was in a COVID room, but he turned out to be negative. Um, but as I'm in there, you know, you sit there, you're being extra careful. Your goggles are fogging up. I wear goggles. I wear a mask. I have an N95 on. I have a mask over that N95. So this way I can extend the use of the N95. I have double gloves. I'm wearing a surgical gown. I'm wearing booties and a, and a head covering. So, um, you know, I'm doing, I'm trying to do a spinal tap where you're really kind of, you know, bogged down with all of your materials on. But um, yeah, no, it's it's very every minute of every day. Like, what am I? Doing? You know, you got to be very deliberate. And I really think that once you become complacent with doing this, once you've done it so many times again and again, I think that's when mistakes are going to happen. And in this case, could be a potentially fatal mistake. So it's I hope no one ever gets used to being in those rooms. I think you got to be really conscientious about every single move that you make. At least I am. You know, I have a lot to lose. My parents are still with me. They live a couple blocks away. Um, they're both elderly, as you can imagine. And um, but it's great to have them. I have two five-year-old twins. They just turned five. Boy-girl twin and a seven-year-old daughter. I have a beautiful wife. I have a lot, a lot to protect. Have you heard of any medical professionals just quitting? taking off, not wanting yeah, to be around yeah, for this? Yeah, that's definitely happened. I do know of uh, a few people who have fallen into that category where they're contemplating um, leaving their job. Have you noticed anything surprising that you, you see in, in patients here that hasn't been reported? No, I've seen no surprise. I've seen stereotypical cases. I've seen a lot of, you know, bilateral ground glass infiltrates that you see with this. A lot of interesting theories. What, about is that? The D- what does that mean? Uh, it's just how the radiographic appearance, how these, it looks like ground glass um, appearance on a chest x-ray. Oh, right. Um, yeah. So you see these, they're often in the periphery. There, I've had some really catastrophic appearing chest x-rays, that you, ones that you see. Uh, appearing all over the internet. There's some interesting theories. I've seen a lot of rapid deoxygenation, and I've seen theories that this is more like altitude sickness. I've seen things that it's a decoupling of oxygen to the hemoglobin molecule, creating something what we call a porphyrin. Um, so a what? Like a porphyrin. If, a, if you're going to educate us, Dr. Sean, yeah. you got to spell you got to spell this yeah, out for porphyrin, us. Porphyrin. P O R. Dumb it down for me. Why are well molecules? It's a, you know they were stripping the red blood cells of its oxygen, decoupling the oxygen from the hemoglobin. Okay. Um, and, now I got it. Uh, and that's why you get this pervasive and rapid deoxygenation. Um, but it raises a whole bunch of new 
treatment modalities too. Depressurization uh, you know, tanks? Right, exactly. Could that work? Could transfusions work? Right? If there's problems with hemoglobin, that the oxygen is being discoupled, being uncoupled from the hemoglobin, would transfusions work? Would a drug that's used for a class of conditions called porphyria, called panhematin, by increasing the oxygen capacity, carrying capacity of your blood, would that work? We don't know. These are all, there's some interesting uh, literature on ivermectin, which is an antiparasitic drug. That's we talked used. about that in yeah. the last episode. It's splice that kids put on their hair if they have lice. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. Getting back to the uh, the uncoupling of oxygen to hemoglobin and the condition called porphyria. Uh, hydroxychloroquine actually shows some effect in porphyria. So maybe there's something there with the hydroxychloroquine, something more mechanistic down at the red blood cell level. We don't really know. It must be a really exciting time to be in medicine, especially when you're such a creative thinker like you are. This is it's, a new frontier. It's, it's terribly fascinating, but I'd rather not be fascinated. Oh, yeah, I shouldn't get too excited I'd rather about go about it. my humdrum life, but... It's um, but it's interesting. Read uh, the neurological consequences, which I see are the same thing that we saw back in SARS, and we see with MERS. It's kind of a mirror. You know, they're both in the coronavirus family. What as well. is that? There, there could be permanent brain damage. Is that how you'd there say? It could it? be. I mean, depending. We're not seeing that. I mean, this is not an encephalitis, right? Although the first case of encephalitis or presumed encephalitis was just reported with uh, coronavirus, the the, right. the coronavirus COVID nineteen was just reported. There's been one report of Guillain-Barre, like we used to see with Zika. But, you know, the common things being common is that this puts a stress on older people and they come in with strokes. Strokes seem to be more common in people with the coronavirus. I think a lot of us think, well, the worst that can happen is you have trouble breathing and they would put you on a ventilator. But you're saying that there's... yeah. There's, There's other an increased things risk to worry strokes, about, like strokes, seizures, um, uh, delirium. We, you know, I get called most often. I get called for the delirium. There's an alteration in mental status. So, um, and that's could about that be 15%. permanent, or are you no, seeing them pop shouldn't be back permanent. out of it? it? Resolves. Yeah, it seems to resolve. Now we're also seeing polyneuropathies, just like we did uh, with SARS and MERS. They Is get that a hand and toe yeah, numbness? I, yeah, like, no, it's not worse than that. That they get. Um, weakness in the arms and legs and sometimes some numbness, but weakness in the arms and legs. And it could progress like a Guillain-Barre syndrome, make you very weak and uh, perhaps at least theoretically paralyze your diaphragm. Is it surprising that a coronavirus type illness would have so many different manifestations? No, because we've had a blueprint already for some of this with uh, the MERS virus, which I think is a beta coronavirus and SARS virus, which is a coronavirus um, as similar to COVID-19. So we saw a lot of these things, at least in the neurological manifestations, we saw a lot of these things with those outbreaks and we're kind of experiencing the same thing. So those on that end, that's a little bit predictable. The transmissibility of this is just a lot different and how rapidly people progress. I've had people with relatively normal appearing chest x-rays, just some minor symptoms, progressed to virtual complete whiteout of both lung fields in just a couple of days, 48 hours. It's 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 the wildest thing to see. You've never um, seen never, that type never. of thing? Really? Never, never. It's, it's like a rocket ship. Yeah. I don't think anyone's ever seen something like this. It's a real robust uh, reaction inside the lungs, and it just whites out the x-ray in very short order. I've You're, never seen anything like it. Is some of the damage long-lasting if the person recovers? I think it's too early to tell. I mean, if it's going to be 
like other viruses in the coronavirus family, presumably you get the infection, you're going to build some immunity, you might get repeat infections that'll be less severe. Um, but viruses are neurotropic. They're, um, they can end up affecting, you know, there could be long-term consequences on the nervous system, there could be long-term consequences on other body tissues. We know that certain viruses, although I don't think coronavirus, but certain viruses can lead to later cancers. Um, you know, if you take your HPV virus, for instance. Oh, um, so now you know, we have to think, worry about additional... Well, we don't know. I mean, as far as I Why? know, I think that's probably a very low risk with coronavirus. We've all been exposed to coronavirus. Coronavirus is... The family of coronavirus is responsible for about 20% of all common colds. So you've been exposed to coronavirus family. Presumably, we don't have anything to worry about in terms of this being some type of, you know, predecessor to a later cancer in life or, you know, uh, something like that, like seen with some other viruses. But I mean, I would presume it's not, but we don't know. There's so many question marks around this um, virus that I think it's too early to tell just about anything, what's going to be permanent and what's going to be um, semi-permanent and what's going to be acute. Do you think the heat and humidity here in Florida affect either the transmission or the progression of coronavirus in a patient? As a whole, the state uh, enjoys you know better weather that might be protective. It's not clear whether or not this is going to be a seasonal thing, or whether or not the hot weather affects it, or will denature the 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 virus itself. Or if the humidity um, could weigh it down. Or the humidity, yeah, could it weigh it down, make it less airborne. So instead of traveling six feet, is it traveling three feet down here? Um, all of that is possible, and all of that is is at least in theory protective. We just don't know yet, uh, at least not that I've seen. Um, I'm hoping it is. I'm getting out as much as possible. Something else that I think that people here in Florida can be doing to protect themselves, every day when I come home from work, I take off my shoes inside my garage. I, I take off my clothes in my garage. I spray down my shoes with Lysol, the soles, the insides, the, the laces, sprayed all day with Lysol. I leave them in the garage. I get undressed in my laundry room, which my garage enters in my laundry room. I throw all my stuff right in the wash, start the wash, and then I walk out to my pool and I put on my bathing suit and I jump into my pool. Oh, that's a good so, idea. Yeah, the pool is kind of like a Hippocleans bath, you know, with the chlorine there and everything in it, that it does um, likely sterilize. We don't know, but That's it likely so sterilizes your body. And, you know, that always goes, you know, I'm not a nose holder, so it goes in your nose, in your mouth, and at least gets at least some of the virus would decrease some of the viral burden inside the nose and mouth. And I've looked you know, through the literature that's available on SARS and MERS and swimming pools and coronavirus in swimming pools. There's a lot out there. Um, at least, you know, should it be safe is what people want to know. Is it safe to swim in a swimming pool? And the overwhelming consensus is that, yes, it should be safe to swim in a swimming pool. In fact, that it probably kills the virus. So I've been jumping in my pool every day. Then I shower and then I come out and I greet my family. Do you think that's a good idea for everyone? I think it's a reasonable idea. I've been going, I'm going in my pool right after this, actually. I go in my pool at least <laughs> well, once I a day. I haven't even seen you in part. I've not contaminated you. <laughs> <laughs> right. right? No, not from you. But just, I just think it's good price. I might be wrong, but the science suggests that I'm not wrong on it. I don't think it's going to spread to anybody else in the pool. I think jumping in your pool is likely protective. Believe me, I wouldn't be doing it. The last thing I want to do after a long, hard day at work is to get naked, put on a bathing suit, and jump into a cold pool. But that's what I'm doing well, uh, every it, night it after work. Can't yeah. hurt. Might yeah, help. I don't think it's, yeah, it likely helps. Yeah. What are you doing with your groceries when they get home? 
Oh, I, I well, first of all, when I go shopping, I uh, bring gloves. Um, you know, I have a box of gloves. I bring gloves. Or when I don't have the gloves, you know, Publix has been wiping down all the shopping carts. So I do use my hands to touch the shopping cart for that. I make sure I don't lift my hands up from the shopping cart. And I boogie myself right to the produce aisle. Once I'm in the produce, I'll have a little uh, thing around my neck that I hang around my neck with hand sanitizer on it. So I sanitize my hands um, and then I sanitize the handle that I was holding. And then I get the little produce bags, the little green produce bags that you put tomatoes in or whatever. Right. And, and I make little gloves out of those. I put them on my hands and You've I got a go whole around system. Stuff. Yeah, and I go around and I shop. I'm wearing a mask, of course. And I shop like that. I get the little bags. They work fine. I don't know how impervious they are to germs, but they're better than nothing, better than my skin. Why and wouldn't you just wear me. gloves? This is better than wearing gloves? Well, gloves get, you know, I don't have them with me all the time, right? You know, the wife says, oh, pick up this on your way home or pick up that, we're out of this, you know? So, um, you know, it's uh, when I don't have my gloves or if I have to stop in a different public and I've already burned my gloves, then I uh, do that with the produce. Are you careful not to touch things that other people have touched in the market? Yeah. Yeah, I'm always reaching in the back, you know. So if I'm reaching for a frozen pizza, I'm reaching in the back one. Although frozen pizza is probably, you know, the temperature probably killed any virus in there. I had a shopper from Instacart type place and he had sent pictures uh, while he was shopping and his hands were all over everything with no gloves. What yeah. do I do about that? Just spray I mean, it? A, a just pretend wipe I never package, saw it? You know, put, pick, I mean, it's highly transmissible. I really don't think that much of many of us are going to be able to avoid this forever. You know, the That's whole thing what about I'm worried the, about. Yeah. We're all going to get it statistically right. speaking. So if I told you, hey, listen, Lori, this year, don't get the common cold. Like, how am I going to not get the common cold? I mean, it's, it's well, going to happen. I'm You're get a- fine just staying home and... I won't get the cold. I mean, I, I, right. I, I, I kind of feel like if you do everything right, you're not going to get it. But then I think about the statistics and yeah, what's it's, it's really going everywhere. on. And it seems like it's going to be 40 to 70% of the population is yeah, at least I mean, going to be an asymptomatic carrier. Right. It, it has to be. I mean, it has, it just doesn't, the math so, doesn't make sense any other way. Are we going to give up that, at some point and just go, well, oh, hell with so. it? Well, you do I think, think so? Yeah, I think that we flattened the curve, right? So, uh, you know, the whole point of flattening the curve was to not overwhelm our medical system. And that appears to have been accomplished, at least on the surface right now. Right. So they're good, but what about us? Like my sisters don't have to stress as much at their job, but what about us? What about me? Well, I think everyone's going to, we're going to be in stress mode forever, even in the hospitals. So going back to the HIV days, like, just because HIV uh, came off of the front pages of the news doesn't mean that I don't have to wear protective equipment when someone could be HIV positive and I'm dealing with their body fluids inside a hospital room. So I think, you know, and this is a lot more communicable than that. I think in the hospital life, I don't think our lives are going to return to the old days like before because this is just highly transmissible. So I don't see how you, your sister or I, are going to get back to the old days of where we're just kind of walking in and out of people's rooms willy nilly. Just that seems that it would be really um, uh, medically irresponsible to do that. So I think that at some point, I think it's dramatically changed what's going to be going on in the hospitals. For us on the outside, there is going to come a point where everybody has it. And those who've gotten sick will have gotten you know minor illnesses or asymptomatic carriers. 
and the rest of them would have had a severe illness and recovered, and a small minority of them would have will will die. Nothing's going to change those numbers. Um, you can't stay in your house forever. You can't avoid food forever. Um, you can't avoid food delivery forever. So sooner or later, you're going to come in contact with somebody who has this virus or someone who is bringing you food with the virus or someone who touched a subway pole that had the virus. I mean, it's when just, did you it's, when did you accept that fact? Right away, just the right away. Is, but yes, yeah, I mean, most yeah, people haven't is, accepted that fact, right? Well, I think if they think about it realistically, how you, you just can't avoid it. It's just not avoidable. It's not a virus that that uh, is hard to catch. It's not like HIV, which is theoretically a pretty hard virus to catch, and it still caused a worldwide uh, catastrophic loss of life and epidemics throughout the world. But you know, that's kind of hard to catch. And this is extremely easy to catch. And it's just a matter that it's, you got to get lucky. You got to make sure that you're in a place that has good health care if you do get it. And you got to make sure that once you do get it to minimize the risk to those around you. And I think that's going to be the rule of the day going forward. I think that if you come down with a respiratory illness in 2022, I think that it's still going to be advisable to listen, this could be coronavirus 19. You might want to, you know, quarantine yourself or take two, one or two weeks off from work. Unless everybody I, has has it by uh, then. and Unless we've developed herd immune. But these are RNA viruses, which um, they, the mutate. Family, they mutate Ugh. so quickly and so rapidly. That's why. So no one, then, was, then you don't think that you don't think having the antibody test is any sort of guarantee that you're not going to get a mutated version of coronavirus. Right. I don't think so. And I think the antibody test is going to give you a false sense of security. We've all been exposed to coronavirus in the past, not the one that we're dealing with now, but a coronavirus in the past. And, and it can work against you in two ways. So if you get a false negative or false positive because you've been exposed to coronavirus in the past, you might not be contagious and 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 you think you have it, but you don't actually have it. And then you spend 14 days waiting for some kind of pulmonary catastrophe to occur. Meanwhile, you just had a common cold a year ago. And that's why you have uh, the antibodies. The antibody okay. tests sometimes yeah, picks up on the wrong antibodies? On the wrong one, right, from uh, the other coronavirus families. Right, it's a cluster, as we used to say in the news business. Right, exactly. A train wreck. Right, yes. a train wreck. And then another thing is that, um, that let's just say you get a negative test, right? I just worked in a very busy hospital full of coronavirus people um, and uh, staff taking care of coronavirus, patients with coronavirus, and now I test myself and I'm negative. Now I have a false sense of security, right? Now I'm negative and walking around like, oh, I didn't get it. Right. From Tomorrow on this you could be. All right. So we, we should just give up. Get it. Should we just give up with this whole well, I think that is going to happen. Charade. Right? At some point, I think the world is going to have to open up. We're going to have to bite the bullet. People are, are unfortunately going to have to die probably in the same amount of numbers had we done nothing. Had we done nothing by shutting down, we would have one big peak, would have overwhelmed the medical system. Certainly more people would have died from catastrophic illness at that point because we wouldn't have the ventilators to put them on and stuff like that. I think the same amount of people are going to end up getting severe illness, just hopefully fewer of them will die because now we do have the medical capacity well, to treat them. We've run stuff up. Yeah. That's what you think. So yeah. same number of people getting it. But same number of people, fewer, severe illness, yeah. fewer, fewer deaths, deaths, but we're yeah. going to have a whole world in the future where we are 
dealing with the illnesses of people who had complications and survived. Correct. Yeah. Now, I do hope that we do develop some kind of herd immunity from this and it just disappears kind of like SARS did. SARS kind of just evaporated. Yeah, that, was, that was a huge fear. And then all of a sudden it was like not right. around. And that very well might here happen it is. here. You don't know. <laughs> right. So if this one goes away, good riddance. You know, I don't ask questions about stuff I don't understand. So good riddance. If it goes away, it goes away. Let's hope it does. But uh, I think that it'd be prudent to plan for this to be around um, and stalk the human race for the rest of time and to not think that it would be short-sighted. And if we get away with it and it goes away, great. If not, then at least we'll be prepared. Well, that's really ending on a high note, Dr. Sean. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Usually uh, I'm more effervescent <laughs> than this, but it's listen, okay. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful because listen, we're in a, the greatest country with the greatest healthcare system in the world. And if, uh, if, I'm, if United States scientists can't figure it out in health, providers can't figure out nobody can i think we'll get to the bottom we'll get a handle on it ordinary life will resume uh, hospital life i'm not sure will ever resume to where it was um but uh, ordinary life should resume and hopefully this is just a short-term pain for a lot of gain on behalf of everybody who is not in the medical field i want to thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, Dr. Sean. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'd like to thank all the people, like the nurses, because I'm in the war, but I'm in the trenches behind a lot of the people who are very much more so on the front line. So our nurses, our doctors, our pulmonologists, our critical care doctors, all the respiratory technicians, and also all the people who are keeping the rest of the world functioning as marginally as it's functioning, all the public's employees, all those people. I mean, they're at a higher risk also, and they're assuming some risk um, just to keep everyone else fed. And uh, those those people need to be acknowledged as well. And probably not getting pay raises. And not, not getting Either any pay raises. they're lucky if they raises, get a mask and some gloves. Right, exactly. They're less equipped than our personnel for sure. So wow. God bless those people for doing what they do too, our policemen, our firemen. Yeah, so a lot of thanks to go around. But I appreciate it, Lori. I'll definitely take the appreciation because it's definitely a frightening time to be working in the hospital. Any doctor who tells you otherwise um, would be lying or just trying to put on a false bravado for you. Or in a little bit of denial just to get through the day. It's just a very scary and frightening time in the hospitals. Thanks, Dr. Sean. All right, Lori, take care. Let's hang out soon. All right. Bye, Lori. Bye. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Next time, we're going to be back, of course, with Lisa Sue and Amy as well for the Four Sisters podcast. We're going to talk about what's going on and California hospitals in terms of coronavirus, how they're handling the patients, new research, new political things related to coronavirus, and also just have some great normal sister talk about other things, play some games like hack track and flack and silver linings and take questions, random questions. So it's going to be fun. So check it out and remember to subscribe. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for the four sisters, call 786-474-6040 and leave them a message. You can now find the Four Sisters podcast on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe and check out their website, foursisters.com. Use the letters or the numbers. It's your call, sisterhood. Stay safe, everybody.